it in God's kingdom is reconciling with those who are angry with you. That is good. Jesus tells us in verse 23, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Church, if we want to be salt and light in our community, in our home, in our church, all around us, we must go to those who are angry and frustrated us and work to rebuild and strengthen those strained and broken relationships. The emphasis is on we. And the time to reconcile, it's not later, it's now. I will say, however, that the person who is um, angry at you, if you've gone to that person and that person does not want to reconcile with you and you've made an earnest and honest effort and you've gone to them asking repentance, that penalty rests on their head, not yours. And you've gone to them. But let me make a caveat here and say that the effort in which you are, are, are making and, and this true reconciliation, this effort in going to your brother or sister who's angry with you, it shouldn't be something as simple as a one-liner through a text message or a one or two-liner in an email or a Facebook message. The scripture here is making it clear that seeking reconciliation with the person is an act of worship and it should not be taken lightly or done at some later time. True effort and prayer must go into the process of reconciliation. And also I say process because it may take time. It may not happen instantly. The time to follow God's kingdom ethic and standard of reconciliation is now. It is not later. The last two verses in 25 and 26, they continue this attitude of reconciliation. Jesus is speaking to his disciples about settling disputes quickly with one's adversary. This is probably in a Gentile or Roman court system that he's talking about. He tells his disciples, come to terms quickly with your accuser. Essentially, be reconciled with the one who has a right to be angry with you. Why? Because repaying one's debt while you're imprisoned for your offense is practically impossible since the debtor has no chance to create the funds to pay off the debt. If you're in prison for what you've done wrong, how can you pay off your debt? To leave a problem or offense unreconciled is to allow the sin that has been created and that relationship to destroy the relationship. Deal quickly with your accuser so that your relationship is not destroyed. Honor God by going to that person, repenting of your sin, asking forgiveness from them. This example that God's that he's given us in 25 and 26, this is an example reiterating the problem of unreconciled anger. For this kind of anger is equivalent to murder, and that's impossible to repay once you've done the damage. Now another way that we can often, we can and we do destroy relationships with people is through the sin of lust. Jesus takes this very seriously. It's why we have this in our passage. Lust is a sin that knows no boundaries between age, race, or demographic. It seeks us all. It comes after us, us all. And Jesus expounds on this ethic by saying, we're going to take a look at verses 27 and 28. Jesus says, 
you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I, Jesus, say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I think we often read these words and see this and think, I know looking at men or women, I know it's not good with lustful intent. I know this. But what the Lord is saying about the seriousness and the nature of this sin, I don't think we often pause to really get the gravity of what's being said. Because what Jesus is saying about this sin should make us shudder. Lust equals adultery. Jesus views the evil lust of the heart as adultery, and he views, just as he views the hatred of the heart as murder. You know what the penalty for adultery was in the Old Testament? Stoning. Very graphic, very graphic way to go down. Being beaten to death by rocks and boulders. This is a serious sin that we, we, we must take seriously in our lives. Absolutely. Jesus is saying to his Jew, a Jewish audience, like he was in verses 21 through 26, you think you fully understand the ethics of my kingdom. You see the seventh commandment, all right, committing adultery, bad. But what Jesus is saying is, do you see there's more here than meets the eye and the simple commandment to not commit adultery? There's more here. You see the physical act of adultery as wrong, a good ethic to value, grant you that. But what he wants you to see is that lust is the root of adultery here. No one in history has had an adulterous relationship simply minus the lust. Doesn't happen. You say, okay, I grant you the obvious. But what is underneath the lust? What's underneath that? The root of this lust is an idolatrous heart, thinking it knows what it needs to satisfy the cravings of the soul. When we look at the opposite sex gazing, staring, in order to desire him or her, in order to possess, to control, to dominate him or her for our own pleasure, and that is lust. And in our own efforts and rationale, we are attempting to control the process of filling our own needs outside the confines of marriage and outside our relationship with Jesus, who gives us his Holy Spirit, his presence, which resides in us. Lust is not permitted in God's kingdom. In the proper setting of marriage, sex is a wonderful thing. It is a gift of God. But there is no place for pornography or any other lustful thoughts, stares, etc. in God's kingdom. There's no place for it. Jesus wants to make this truth so crystal clear that he uses great hyperbole, which is great exaggeration, in verses 29 through 30. Look at this with me. He says, If your right hand, excuse me, if your right eye causes you to sin, Tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand calls you sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is strong language, isn't it? It truly is. This command, I will tell you, should not be taken literally. It for if a person even plucks out his right eye, cuts off his right hand, you have your left eye, you have your left hand to sin. You do. So we're not talking about literally maiming yourself. 
The meaning of this exaggeration of self-mutilation displays the drastic nature that one needs to take to combat this sin of lust. This is a big deal. We need to take it seriously. God knows how, God knows how insidious the sin of lust is. Lust must not be protected or nurtured. It must be slain and put to death. Half-hearted attempts to destroy this sin can also wreak havoc on your lives and the lives of others when you give a half-hearted effort to come at this sin. An example of a half-hearted effort may be deleting your computer browser, right? Or your cookies, yet you fail to get a computer program to protect you from those images in the future. Whatever it may be. Repeated half-hearted efforts to kill sin, they can be hard on your psyche. They truly can. Because you think, I've tried all these times, but yet this sin, it still lingers, it's still there. Jesus is reminding us, it is time to get serious with these sins that are present in our lives. And we must take drastic measures to combat them, to destroy them. Sexual purity is going to take sacrifices. It's simply, it really is. It's going to require taking steps to ensure that you don't expose yourself to temptation that you cannot handle. Sexual sin, it must be cut off, it must be stamped out before temptation is allowed to gain a foothold in your mind. Practically speaking, in order to take this kingdom ethic seriously, you know, it may require you to do one of these things, maybe to remove your movie channels, maybe throw away your copy of Fifty Shades of Grey, or what other maybe soft core books that you may have. It may be that you give up your gym membership because you struggle with that being there at the gym. It may be that you need to move your computer to a public area where you don't have it in your private confined space and you can do what you want without people knowing. It may be purchasing a program like Covenant Eyes to protect you from images you could come across in the future. Or maybe giving up your job depending on the severity of an issue, maybe with a coworker. I don't know. But we need to take this thing seriously. You know, I'd also recommend that you take some time to think about if I deal with this issue of lust, why am I dealing with this issue of lust? What's underneath it? What's fueling this for me? You may need to process that very question with a pastor or a professional counselor. You may need to do that. And you know, we have some great counselors we work with at Heart Song Counseling. And you know what? You can meet with any of us pastors or you can meet with them. And we'd love to get you some help. Let me tell you, this is a big sin that we deal with. It's not going away. You know, I will say I do not have a silver bullet for you that's going to get rid of all your problems all at once. Don't have it. But I can give you a place to start, and that is simply prayer, asking for God's mercy and intervention to help you make the first steps and combating and warring with this sin in your life. Because we serve a mighty God who is powerful. We serve a God who also requires of us his kingdom ethics. But you know what? He's also a God who has unlimited resources, who is strong, who is gentle and is gracious, who wants to help you with these sins every step of the way. Because he's not going to leave you. He simply is not. He's going to give you the right motivation that you need to combat these things. 
He is a good God, and he is a God who provides for what he commands of his people. Psalm 34, verses 17 and 18 says, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. God hears your pleas for help, and he will provide. Ask him. Take time to ask him. Another area where we need help and wisdom in dealing with issues of marriage and divorce. This is, a, this is a big issue in our world and issues that many of us deal with. In Jesus' day, there was a great deal of confusion and complexity on the subject of divorce. And it is into that difficult context that, Je- that Jesus came and he gave his disciples his kingdom standard for marriage and divorce and remarriage. This is a hard topic to discuss. It is complex. And we're not going to talk about every possible situation that could come up right here in this text. But we are going to address some major things. I hope you follow and track along with what Jesus does say here. And I think sometimes one of the most difficult aspects of dealing with divorce is because there's so much of us in a marriage relationship or in a divorce, whether it's parents, children, friends, or maybe you're one one of the spouse. It takes a lot of you. This is a difficult situation. But nonetheless, the Lord speaks to it and he has wisdom for us. This This issue is prevalent in our world, in our culture, and also in our church. And as I said about lust, divorce also is not going away anytime soon. Jesus dealt with this problem of divorce in his day and age. And in verses 31 and 32, he teaches us the spirit of this kingdom ethic, the standard for divorce. Please read with me. Let's take a look at verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman, commits adultery. Jesus' comments here on divorce, they must be understood in the proper context in which he is saying them. He is addressing two common Jewish teachings taught by the Pharisees and scribes in his day regarding divorce. One teaching comes from the school of Shammai, which basically says that divorcing a spouse is is only possible if he or she commits an indecent act, which also has a witness to confirm this indecent act. The other teaching that was prevalent in Jesus' day came from the school of Hillel, which taught divorce was allowable for basically anything you could think of. If you burned the dinner, a man could divorce his wife. Boom, here's his certificate of divorce. Dinner was not great. Here you go. It could also be if, hey, you didn't put makeup on one day and you didn't look pleasing. Boom, here's a certificate of divorce. These were some of the views that were prevalent in Jesus' context. So understanding this is very important. I also want to make the note that there was also probably really no court involvement in this certificate of divorce. Only the singular action of the husband really was required for handing out a divorce certificate to his wife. Obviously, divorce policy in Jesus' day was pretty loose. But 
that's not unlike our day and age, really, either. It really isn't. What Jesus is saying is that divorce is only valid on the grounds of sexual immorality. Divorcing your wife because she burned the chicken or didn't put on makeup one day is breaking the spirit of the seventh commandment, which is adultery. Unbiblical divorce, even if it's legal according to the Pharisees' law, it is immoral. Unbiblical divorce is a violation of the seventh commandment, and hence, unbiblical divorce is in fact adultery. Do you see what Jesus is doing here by correcting the misuse of the divorce law that the Pharisees were trying to say? It's really easy, actually. The Pharisees had strong views against adultery, which we heard earlier, which was stoning. But the Pharisees thought they were not guilty of breaking the laws of adultery. They thought they were scot-free. We're falling low to the law. We're not breaking this. But Jesus says, even if you're not committing adultery yourself, if you have a low view of marriage, a low view of divorce, then you are also involved in divorce, involved in, excuse me, adultery. Essentially, you're paving the way, making it easier for others to get a divorce when you have such a low view of the marriage covenant which God institutes. Jesus is getting at the spirit of the law, something that the Pharisees and scribes and many of us and also our world struggle to understand or to take seriously. Jesus is speaking to a social situation in Israel where men would have been virtually really probably the only ones to be able to get a divorce because they had the financial and legal resources to get a divorce. But Jesus' words, they do apply to all of us in today. Even though his words are directed towards men, he is not simply just zeroing in on men with no other application anywhere else. The question, what does Jesus mean when he says, I tell you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery? You might be thinking, I mean, that sounds kind of unfair. A man unbiblically divorces his wife and she therefore commits adultery. But I will say this is not explicitly what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is that anyone who initiates an unbiblical divorce is breaking himself or herself the seventh commandment and you are involving others in that sin. Jesus is making it clear that unbiblical divorce does not solve sin, rather it complicates sin and it truly does. It doesn't get you necessarily out of just a difficult situation. It complicates the difficult situation that is already there. A certificate of divorce is not going to get you off the moral hook, is what Jesus is saying, making everything fine in God's eyes because you followed simply the letter of the law. Jesus is going further than that, talking about the spirit of this law. He's saying that you must uphold and encourage the view that marriage is forever, that it is sacred between a man and a woman we are not to merely refrain from violating the marriage covenant, simply following the letter of the law, but we are called to actually uphold the holiness and the sacredness of the marriage covenant, which is to obey the spirit of the seventh commandment. The heart of this law is to recall the original purpose for marriage, the oneness that it brings between a man, a woman, and also God. Marriage is forever. Marriage 
is forever. And we are called to uphold this standard. And here, by means of a few simple words, Jesus, he discourages divorce. Jesus refutes rabbinical, rabbinical misinterpretation of divorce law. Jesus reaffirms the law's true meaning regarding the breaking of the seventh commandment, which is adultery. Jesus punishes the guilty party, the one who's forcing the unbiblical divorce. Jesus defends the innocent party who's divorced unbiblically, putting more of the blame on the person who's initiating it. And throughout it all, Jesus upholds and he supports the sacredness of the marriage covenant, which is ordained by God. That all goes to say in God's kingdom, divorce is to be taken very seriously. As God's people, you cannot hold Kim Kardashian's 72-day view of marriage. Can't hold that. Can't hold that standard in God's kingdom. Why? Because the covenant bond of marriage is forever. That is the view that we are to have, that we are to tell and encourage others. It's not a contract for a specified period of time. It's not a simple agreement that can be broken at will for incompatible reasons. Living by God's kingdom laws and ethics isn't easy, but they are right and they are good for you and I, for our society, and for our world. He's in control and he knows what is good for his people. And we would do well not only to simply follow the letter of the law, but to also follow the spirit of the law, which is encouraging and supporting God's view of marriage, which is forever. You know, if you have questions about marriage, divorce, remarriage, we have some great resources here um, that we can give to you. I'm simply just going to name five books that we use that are very helpful. Staying Close by Dennis Rainey is a great resource. Hope for the Separated by Gary Chapman is a great resource. Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage in the Bible which is by Jay Adams, which is on, mainly on divorce, but also on his other topics, a great resource. Another book is also Remarriage, A Healing Gift from God by Larry Richards. You know, I have a much longer list of, um, of resources here because this issue of divorce is prevalent. This is just a list of books, books on marriage, books on separation or broken relationships, books on divorce, books on remarriage. These are great resources, maybe for you, or maybe for it's for a friend. But we have resources for you. And this is one way you can also encourage and support institution of marriages, not only by getting educated and reading more about it, but also helping others. We have resources for you. Another resource that's a great thing, this. Insert, it's in your bulletin. Family Life puts this on. It's going to be in rest in, in the first um, weekend of April. And it's going to be... A weekend to remember. Basically, take your marriage to a whole new level, talking about issues of marriage. Many of you have been to this and can speak to this. But this is another great way to support the institution of marriage, whether it's your own or to encourage other people to go be a part of it. That's one way we can actually take this kingdom ethic seriously. But our final kingdom ethic, which Jesus expounds upon in our passage has to do with transparency and honesty. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was dealing with people who would swear to God, swear to the heavens, swear to earth, swear to Jerusalem, and all sorts of other lesser things. 
to make their oaths or promises seem more credible than they truly were. The problem was that their words were not trustworthy enough. When they said yes or no, they had to add to that because their words were not simply trustworthy enough. Therefore, these people would invoke the names of higher things to simply try to gain gain credibility with those around them. Jesus had a problem with this. And so he rightfully tells us in our passage, let's look at verse 33. Jesus says this, Again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I, Jesus, I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. A good question to ask would be, well, what is an oath? We're talking about oaths. What are they? Well, the powerful and informative Wikipedia tells us that an oath is a promise calling upon something or someone, usually God, as a witness to, a, to the binding nature of a promise. So a common example of an oath would be for a witness appearing in court, I promise by Almighty God that the evidence I shall give will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. The Westminster Confession tells us that whoever takes an oath ought to consider the weightiness of the oath and to be fully persuaded of the truth of one's oath. An oath is to be taken in plain and common sense words without mental reservation. It cannot cause one to sin, and a law and a lawful oath being imposed by a lawful authority in such matters ought to be taken. So we have some good guidance even within our own confession about the seriousness of oaths. What we have in this passage here is a reiteration of the serious nature of oaths. They are not to be taken lightly. You are not to bind someone to sin, and oaths are to be taken in rare circumstances, a legal proceeding being one of those. The spirit of this law is to be truthful and be of such high character that people believe what you say when you make a promise. They believe you. You do not need to swear. You do not need to make a huge oath or promise. Because we're not to make false promises. We are not to be untrustworthy in God's kingdom. Jesus makes it clear that these things are not appropriate. Verse 37 further elaborates this point by saying, let your yes be yes and let your no be Let it be no. You need to mean what you say when you say it. When you say yes or no, you should not have to take a note or swear to others to find that you're credible. You know, that also goes for our children. When we say, I promise, I'll pick up this, or I promise to do my chores. Well, you know, that's also for you guys, too. When you tell your parents, say, yes, I will do this, or no, I can't do this. Let your words be credible, just as we adults are called to the same thing. It is very true. Now, I recognize most of us don't regularly take oaths, or really have to, but I will say that we must be people of integrity. We must be people of respect and honor. And you must be like this in the workplace, in the home, in the church, out in the world, out with your friends. Because as God's people living in God's kingdom, living by God's ethics and standards, 
We are called to be righteous. So righteous, in fact, that our righteousness should exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes. And it's their professional job to uphold the law. This is a tall order. But we are called to this. We are called in these passages not only to follow the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law to go further. Can we do this on our own? Can you follow the spirit of these four ethics that we've talked about? Can you do it on your own? No. No, you can't. Up to this point, if we had to do all these things listed in our own power, we had to do these things by our own strength, we had to do these things by our own motivations, I think we'd be in um, big, big trouble. Things like removing all unrighteous anger from your life. Things like removing all of our lustful desires completely, doing all this on your own. Not doubting your marriage ever. Or remaining truthful all of the time, not breaking any promises. We cannot live up to these standards perfectly. Let's just be honest and frank about this. We can't do this perfectly like we're called to. By our own strength, by our own power, and by our own motivations. Because we are too weak and we are too prone to temptation. But you know what the good news is? You know what the great news is? Is that Jesus, your Lord and Savior, lived, he lived and led a perfect life. Which can be yours. He led the perfect life that you, 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 me, my family, and everybody else, that we cannot live. We can't do it. But Jesus did it. Jesus never got unrighteously angry. Jesus never lusted. Jesus never held a low view of marriage or divorce. Jesus never gave a false promise or was untrustworthy. Jesus led a perfect life, even though he was tempted in every way that you have ever been. He understands what that's like. He purchased a righteousness that far exceeded that which the Pharisees or scribes could ever comprehend. Jesus not only obeyed the letter of the law, but Jesus fully obeyed and supported the spirit of the law too. Church, that righteousness, that justification, that perfect life of Jesus Christ, which we all need, that is accredited to you if you love and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That which is Jesus's, that which he's earned, is can be yours if you trust and love in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. You are given eternal freedom from the bondage and penalty of sin. If you love and trust Jesus with your whole heart, knowing you are a sinner and that God is your Savior and you believe that, then you are never... You're never going to have to pay the penalty for getting unrighteously angry at your friends. The eternal penalty for that is death. You're never going to have to pay the eternal penalty for getting angry, unrighteously angry at somebody. That's good news because we all get angry. And most of the time, unrighteously so. You will never have to pay the eternal penalty that you deserve for looking at pornographic images or reading soft pornographic books, etc. You're not going to have to pay the penalty for that when you trust and love in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and He is your salvation. You will never have to pay the eternal penalty for having a low view 
of marriage or divorce when you love and trust in Jesus. You will never have to pay the eternal penalty for lying and making promises you simply cannot keep. Why? I will tell you why. Romans 8, 1-4 through 4 tells us, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according, who, who walk not according to the flesh, but called according to the Spirit. Church, that which Christ commands of his people, which is perfect righteousness, is exactly what he offers us. It is exactly what he offers to you. He freely gives to you his son, Jesus. And you know what? This gospel that we have just been talking about, this is our motivation. This is the motivation that we have to war and fight against these ethics, these standards, these sins, to follow these things. The gospel is your motivation to live out these standards. It is also the power in which you are able to live out these ethics and standards. The gospel, the grace that is giving to us undeserving people is the fuel that leads us to repentance and it is the power to fight and overcome these difficult sins. We can fight against these sins and evil because we are deeply loved by a warrior God who fought all of these sins and temptations and he came out victorious. He gives you his spirit, his strength, his peace, his wisdom, he gives that to you when you love and trust in his name. He gives you the resources you need to follow these kingdom ethics and to fight the sins that you are exposed to. The gospel of Jesus is our motivation to obey God's kingdom ethics, which he requires of us. Now in the very beginning, I asked you all, what comes to mind when you see this image? I'm going to leave you with this. Same question. What comes to mind for you when you see this image? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. People who need your grace. We are a people who need your mercy, who need your intervention, Lord. For these laws and these standards that you've given us, they are not easy to follow. But Lord, when I look at your cross, when I look at your Son, who shed his blood for us, who gives us his Spirit, Lord, I am strengthened and I, I am reminded that you are with me wherever I go and that you will provide the resources I need to follow these kingdom ethics. You are the reason, Lord, we can obey these things. You are the reason that when we sin, we do not have to pay the penalty for the sin that we've incurred. You are good and you are faithful. Lord, we love your Son. 
that we thank you for him and what he's done for us, living the perfect life that we never could. Thank you for accrediting that righteousness to us this day, which leads us to repentance and leads us to worship to your holy name. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.